Please be seated. If you have a Bible, you can open to John 6. We'll look at verses 35 to 59 this morning. The text is also printed in the bulletin on the next page for you there. So we're finishing up today the, uh, what is commonly known as the bread of life discourse, the sermon. Uh, It says actually at the end of our text that Jesus was in a synagogue teaching these things, so it's kind of like in a church service. Jesus is having a a conversation slash sermon um, with the people here. Uh, We're finishing that up this morning. There's a lot in here that we're not going to spend much time addressing, Uh, so... In a minute, as we read through the passage, if you have questions about anything, really, uh, what you're hearing, what we're reading uh, together, make a little mark by the verse and bring it up in sermon discussion, or, um, or let's get coffee sometime to talk more about your questions. I really am available. Um, I mean, if all of you wanted to meet on Wednesday, I'm not available, but uh, you know, we could space things out. I, I would like to meet with you if you want to meet with me. So um, let's get coffee, talk about any questions you might have about this passage that we don't cover this morning. So what I want to focus on this morning is what Jesus means when he talks about us eating his body and drinking his blood. What does he mean when he's talking about eating and drinking? What's involved in the activity of our eating and drinking, consuming Christ? What is that? What is he talking about? What does that look like in our lives? How do we eat and drink Jesus? He's not offering himself up and saying, here, take a carving knife Right? And make sure you bring a cup so that you can catch what spills. You know, He's not talking about that. What is he talking about? Last week we talked about what it means that he's the bread of life. That his relationship as a human being to the Father, his relationship to God as Father, um, is the source of our life with God. That, that is our relationship. And we finished last week by briefly touching on how to get that bread. Jesus is the bread of life. How do we get that bread for ourselves, for our life? Uh, that is, um, we, we receive his relationship to the Father by faith. We talked about that very briefly at the end of last week, uh, <clears throat> so we need to expand on that point. How do we appropriate the life of Christ by faith for our lives? How do we do that? How do we consume Jesus Christ for a, eternal life in relationship with God? In other words, how do we apply the gospel? in our lives in practical ways. How do we do that? That's what we'll talk about this morning. Let me pray, then we'll read the scripture. Father, we do pray for your help. We need your Holy Spirit. If we're going to know you as you've revealed yourself in Christ, we need uh, a relationship with you that comes through, uh, through your spirit. And so we pray for your spirit's help as we consider your word, as we hear it. As we meditate on it, we pray that it would stick with us and that uh, our minds and our hearts would return to this word and to your scriptures um, because they do reveal who you are and what you're like and what you've done for us in the gospel. We pray that that would uh, make a difference in our lives now. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me, and yet do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. 
And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. So the Jews grumbled about him because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. They said, isn't this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I have come down from heaven? Jesus answered them, do not grumble among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws him. And I will raise him up on the last day. It is written in the prophets, they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me, not that anyone has seen the Father except he who is from God, he has seen the Father. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. The Jews then disputed among themselves, saying, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. As the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so whoever feeds on me, he also will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven, not like the bread the fathers ate and died, Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. Jesus said these things in the synagogue as he taught at Capernaum. This is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Praise be to you, O Christ. So Jesus is emphatically repetitive here, isn't he? You go through there, how many times does he need to say it? He's keeping our attention on himself. He's, He's keeping our attention on himself as the source of our life with God. He has to. Because otherwise, we would drift off into distraction and unbelief. Because we just don't get it the first 100,000 times we hear the gospel. I am not exaggerating with that number. We don't get it the first 100,000 times we hear the gospel. I need help with this as much as you do. So here you've got a crowd of people who sought out Jesus We know from uh, earlier in the chapter, they sought him out to get bread from him, just to get lunch, because they were getting hungry again. And uh, and right in the face of his self-disclosure, his revelation of himself as the true bread of life, right in the face of that, they kept insisting that he give them earthly bread, because that's what they really wanted. They really wanted food. Not Jesus himself. They wanted earthly food, not this bread from heaven, whatever it is Jesus is talking about. Right, right in the face of his self-disclosure, they say, no, we want bread. You could give us bread. <clears throat> it's, it's pretty bold going to God to ask him for things that we want more than him. But amazingly, that doesn't put God off. We've been doing that for the history of humanity, going to God, asking him for things we really want more than him. 
and instead of uh, smiting us, wiping us out, doesn't put him off, Jesus continues to engage with these people quite a bit after they, they don't get it, and then they still don't get it, and then they still don't get it. He continues to engage with them gently, consistently, firmly, emphatically, redirecting them to himself. We're hungry. We want bread. I am the bread of life. Eat my flesh and you'll never be hungry again. What are you talking about? What do you even mean saying that? I'm the living bread. Come down from heaven. Eat my flesh and you'll live forever. How on earth can you give us your flesh to eat? Just a bit off the flank that you won't miss? No. You've got to eat my flesh and drink my blood. It's true food and true drink that leads to everlasting life with God. Now, he says a couple times that people actually can't come to him. They actually can't come to him unless the Father draws them, unless they hear and respond to the Father's teaching, the Father's calling. And that's a really hard saying that makes them upset and it makes us upset. It's a really hard saying that we won't take much time to address now, but it looks like Jesus is talking about our resistance to him. We have a natural resistance left to ourselves. We will not come to God. We will not eat Christ's flesh, and we will not drink his blood. Whatever it is he means by that, we will not do it. Left to ourselves, resistance is natural. We are born that way in this fallen world. God's overriding grace has to be at work in our lives if we're going to come to Jesus at all. But the focus, I mean, those hard sayings aren't really the focus of this passage. Again, if you want to talk more about that, we can talk about it later. But the focus of what Jesus is saying is that this, it, he's, he's calling people, come to me, eat and drink and live forever. Trust me, consume me. That's the focus of the passage. If you do, he says... Truly, truly, I say to you, absolutely, this is the truth, I will by no means cast you out. Anyone who comes, anyone who comes, I will keep you forever. I'll raise you up on the last day. If you want to, it's yours. You will be totally accepted by God now and forever. Jesus will raise you on the last day with a resurrection life like his, always to enjoy relationship with God as he does right now. The emphasis is clearly on this invitation, on the proclamation of God's free acceptance of you in Jesus Christ. So come and trust and consume and live forever with God. So how do we do that? How do we do that? What does that mean? Consuming, eating. He's saying, you need to come and eat and drink me. What does that mean? The short answer, of course, is we do that. It's by faith. Still not really clear what that means. It, it's a simple matter of opening yourself up to him and saying yes. It's seeing who Jesus is, seeing who he really is, seeing what he's like, what he said, what he did, who he is, and not resisting, but saying yes. That's kind of a, a super basic understanding of what faith is, <clears throat> but let's get more explicit than that because it is so easy for us to stay at the level where we expect Christianity, we're talking about How does this work practically? How do we practically eat and practically drink Christ for life? If it's going to be practical, it's got to meet our demands for relevance, doesn't it? We define what practical is, don't we? 
practical, meaningful to my life. Here's what my life is. Here are these different components of it. If God, if Jesus, if the gospel is going to be practical, then it needs to fit into that grid, this, this predetermined uh, understanding of what relevance and practicality means. We want bread. We want earthly food. These people are not just idiots who come to Jesus and keep insisting, please feed us again. Yes, yes, we're not quite sure what you're saying, but please feed us lunch again. We all want food or things. We all want, and we think if, if Christianity is going to be practical, it's got to provide these things. We want health. We want pleasure. We want rest. We want security. Doesn't God want those things for us too? Doesn't practical Christianity mean figuring out how to get those things from God? No. Practical Christianity does not mean figuring out how to get those things from God. True practical Christianity means getting Jesus. That's what Christianity is about. That's what eternal life is about. That's what God wants for you. That's what he made you for. Anything practical with regard to Christianity means getting Jesus. How do you do that? How do you get him? He's our bread. He's our health. He's our pleasure. He's our rest. He's our security. So a Christian who wants life practically wants Jesus Christ. He's not a practical means to some other end, like becoming a better person or getting better circumstances in life. That's laughable. Sometimes it's a bit too sad to laugh, but really is laughable to think that Jesus is a practical means to getting better circumstances in your life. Jesus himself is our life, which is great news. This, this free gift of God's grace that Jesus himself is your life is great news if you're interested. Because we don't have to work to get him. He's already given himself to us. <clears throat> he says in verses 47 and 48, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. I'm the bread of life. There he is, standing right there for all the world to see. Whoever believes has it, has eternal life. I'm the bread of life. You have me. So let's get practical about Jesus as our life. He makes a big deal in this passage about his flesh and his blood says it over and over again. The bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. My flesh is true food. My blood is true drink. He is not just talking about the biological organic matter of his body. Maybe it seems like that should be obvious. We need to say that out loud. He's not talking about this stuff. When he says, if you eat this or drink this, you'll live forever. As if... You know, let's just start with his fingertips because that'll hurt least. And maybe there will be enough for us all to go around. That's not what he's talking about, the biological organic matter of his body. He's talking about his humanity. His humanity in biblical terms, flesh and blood, flesh and blood throughout the, the scriptures, that's, that's humanity. Right? Every aspect of his particular life as a human being in relationship with God as his father, is meant for our consumption. It's meant for our life. Every aspect of his human life in relationship to God is meant for our consumption, to, that we would appropriate that 
for ourselves by faith. Every aspect of Christ is relevant to life with God. Every aspect of Christ is practical for you if what you really want is life with God through him. His incarnation is relevant. It's practical to you. His conception by the Holy Spirit, his birth of the Virgin Mary, his life as recorded in the Gospels, every part of it. His baptism, his war with the devil, his victory over the devil, his suffering, his death, his resurrection, his ascension, his glorification, everything about him was done ultimately and primarily with with regard to his relationship to God as Father. Everything in his life, every aspect of his humanity, in perfect relationship to God as his Father for us, everything about him applies to us in our life with God in some way. Here's what I'm talking about. I know maybe this sounds heady, but here's what it means to eat and drink Christ, to consume Christ. Let's say you're sad. Let's say you're depressed. Jesus' life with God was and is always characterized by joy. He's the joyful one. The gospel says he rejoiced in the Holy Spirit. He rejoiced in his relationship with the Father, that it was for joy that he even lived and suffered and died at the cross. That upon his resurrection, God made him to see joy everlasting, made him satisfied with the work that he had accomplished. Jesus doesn't just give you some abstract thing called joy, some feeling. He gives you his own joy because he he gives you himself. As As a human being in relationship with God, he has all joy and he gives it to you as a free gift to be enjoyed vicariously in him and through him. He gives you himself through his spirit, through spiritual union with him. When you are united to Jesus Christ by his Holy Spirit, everything he has belongs to you, just like a husband marrying a wife. Now they share everything. And joy is one of the primary fruits of that relationship. Think of the fruit of the Spirit. Because of his grace, you may at any time consume Christ and be joyful. If you're sad... If you're depressed, you can consume Christ by faith and have his joy filling you up, the scripture says, by the imagination of your faith. Not just pretending, but the imagination of your faith to live vicariously in him, trust that his joy, his joyful relationship with the Father, that's yours. It's true for you. Let's say you're anxious, you're worried about something, anything. Health, job situation, housing, anything, grades, whatever. You're anxious, you're worried. Jesus' life with God was and is always characterized by perfect peace. Anxiety has no place in his life, never has. The gospel shows him constantly resting in his relationship with the Father, even in the most painful and frightening circumstances that he faced even as he faced everything being stripped away in a violent death, humiliating, painful death. He sought first the kingdom of heaven and the will of his Father, and the Bible says he went quietly, like a lamb heading to the slaughter, and he committed his spirit into his Father's hands, and now, and now he sits. He sits, that's a picture of rest, 
in the scriptures. He sits enjoying eternal Sabbath, absolutely unthreatened by any circumstances that could ever happen again, at complete peace with God forever. And he invites you to be anxious for nothing, he says. Don't, don't be anxious about anything. But to enter his rest with him, because of his grace, you may at any time consume Christ and have his peace, his peace from his relationship with God. You can have that by the imagination of your faith. Trust that his peace is true for you because it is true for you. He's given himself for that very purpose. Let's say you're feeling guilty that your sin, uh, you, you, you just imagine your sin stands between you and God. There's, a, there's an app for that. There's a gospel application for that. Right? At his baptism, Jesus took your sins. He entered into a relationship of solidarity with you where everything that was yours became his. He took your sins. He adopted them, all of them, the ones you did yesterday, the ones you've done your whole life, the ones you're going to do right now and the rest of this day and tomorrow and forever. The ones, the ones you do, all of your sins, past, present, and future throughout your whole life, he adopted them, and at the cross he was executed as the greatest of all criminals. He became sin, the Bible says. He became sin so that sin could be put to death as he was put to death, and it could be removed as an obstacle from our relationship with God so that your guilt would be a non-thing forever between you and God. It's a non-thing now. God raised him from the dead in supreme approval of his ministry of reconciliation and received him. God received Jesus Christ into his presence as the king of heaven and earth. He sits at God's right hand forever. And as your brother, which Jesus says that he is, as your brother, Jesus shares his inheritance with you. He shares his welcome and his acceptance by God with you. He makes his eternal heavenly reception yours. Uh, it's like it says in the, um, the last verse of uh, the song we sang earlier, and can it be, <clears throat> no condemnation now I dread. Jesus and all in him is mine. Alive in him, my living head, and clothed in righteousness divine, bold I approach the eternal throne and claim the crown through Christ my own. It's not just a meager welcome. It's, it's the welcome that's owed to kings and queens returning to heaven that Jesus gives us. There's no condemnation for you anymore. Because of his grace, you may at any time consume Christ and know, happily, that you're forgiven that you're beloved, that you're accepted, that you belong in heaven, that that's your home. You have a rightful place there because Jesus has a rightful place there and he gives himself to you to be consumed by faith. Let's say you need help loving other people and uh, you've got messed up motives all the time for the things that you do, the service, the ways you help, the ways you interact with others. You've got messed up motives. You need help loving other people. Jesus himself is the personification of love in human form. He's the personification of love, and he shares himself with you. His perfect motives included to be employed by you vicariously. His motives, they're yours. You may consume him by faith and act with his motives, even if you don't 
feel those motives at work in your heart all the time. And you can love others when it would be normally impossible for you to do so. Because of Jesus. Let's say you're suffering persecution. Jesus is the faithful witness who boldly testified to God's love, whose path took him through the cross. Not a, not a pretty picture. But you can consume him by faith and possess his faithfulness as the true witness to God's love. You can possess his faithfulness and get to know him in his sufferings with the hope of, of sharing in his resurrection in the face of things like persecution. Let's say you're struggling to want to obey God. Jesus always did and, and always does his Father's will. And it is beautiful, and his obedience counts for you. And you may adopt it as your own. Let's say you're struggling to pray. Jesus lives a life of constant prayer and communion with God, and he invites you into his own prayer to participate in his own communion with God. God is his Father, and he gives you that relationship through spiritual union with him. Do you need to grow in gratitude? Consume Christ. He's the truly grateful one. You are not. But he's got perfect gratitude. And spiritually, by faith, you can consume him, and his gratitude becomes yours. Praise and adoration. You need to grow in that. Enter into Christ as he belts out the Psalms. He's the one who prays the Psalms perfectly. You need purpose in life. Jesus Christ lived utterly with God for the sake of other people. He was perfectly connected with his own purpose and the meaning of his life. And that's free. That's a free gift to you. Through faith in Jesus Christ, consume him by faith and his purpose becomes yours. You have problems with temptation. He's our champion. He went head-to-head, toe-to-toe with the devil, and he beat him on our behalf. He faced everything that the devil had to throw at him. You have problems with grumbling and complaining. Yeah? Grumbling and complaining? He's perfectly content. He's perfectly satisfied. Never uttered a single complaint. And his life is yours. Struggling with anger, or fear, or resentment, struggling with peer pressure, lust, boredom, apathy, self-absorption, self-destruction, the answer is Jesus. There is a gospel application for every one of those things. And you can consume him by faith. Um, You want to grow in your ability to do evangelism, the good things that a Christian's called to do, in, in mercy and justice and compassion and hope and generosity and kindness and patience? Consume Christ. There's an aspect of his life that covers these things, and he has all these things in spades, and he gives them all to you as he gives his humanity to you and and on your behalf. Salvation means that the, the truth is, the truth, the first word and the last word that you'll hear from God, the word that stands over all of us, the truth is everything Jesus Christ has is yours. 
And all you have to do is look at him and say, yes, thanks. That's, that's what faith is. Faith doesn't make salvation true. Faith is how you participate in what is true. The reality is Jesus Christ has a relationship with God. It's a perfect relationship. And the reality is he's given it to you too. And you can live in it. Faith doesn't make that true. Faith is your way of participating in what is already true. What's been given to you as a free gift of God's grace. Whether you're consciously aware of it right now at every moment or not, Jesus' relationship with the Father is yours. It is always true. He's in heaven right now being who he is for our sake, for our relationship to God. And all of that is yours. All of it's yours. I'm not sure if I should... uh, I had a dream last night. I was looking for, I was looking for application or uh, illustrations of this. I had a dream. This is not the best crafted illustration because I just had this dream last night and popped into my head. I was like, hey, that's great. That's perfect. Uh, any of you ever seen the Marvel superhero movies, the Avengers? The ones with Thor in them, especially Thor. Everybody know that Thor was this, he's the, sort of the god of thunder, right? Uh, from Asgard, he's got this special hammer. It's like this unique weapon. It's called Mjolnir, hard to pronounce, wonderful hammer that nobody can pick up except for him because apparently he's worthy to pick it up and nobody else can, right? So all the Avengers are sitting around, you know, one night playing games, seeing if anybody can pick this thing up, if they can even make it budge. And, uh, and nobody can, right? Uh, Thor's the only one who can pick this up because his father, Odin, said this, um, he spoke kind of the, I don't know, some kind of magical incantation <laughs> over, over the hammer, and he says, Who, whosoever holds this hammer, if he be worthy, shall possess the strength of Thor, shall possess the power of Thor, right? So Thor's worthy, he can pick up the hammer, and he can use it, and nobody else can. And in this dream that I had, it was laying there, and Jerry, my wife, goes over and check this out. She picks it up. <laughs> and I try to pick it up, and I'm like, oh, struggling, struggling. And, and she says something, that, or something, it, it occurs to me, you know, I'm worthy. Like, I'm not, I'm not worthy to pick up this hammer. Let me pray and ask Christ for his worthiness. <laughs> this is just a weird, I don't, I don't like, <clears throat> I couldn't pick it up until I, I thought of Christ and I imagined his righteousness and his worth as my own, and then I could pick it up, <laughs> right? Uh, <clears throat> it's, it's, it's an okay illustration, right? It's an okay analogy. <clears throat> I'd be able to pick up this, this hammer, which only worthy people would be able to do, not through my own worthiness, but because of Jesus Christ, because he's always worthy. Whether I'm believing that or not, whether I'm connected mentally with my imagination to his worthiness or not, he is worthy, he is always worthy. My faith is just how I, how I adopt his worthiness how, for myself, how I participate in, how I enjoy, how I am able to pick up a hammer that otherwise I wouldn't be able to pick up and use it, Right? Now, that doesn't mean now 
every, everything, being, everything that belongs to him as the perfect human being in relationship with God being ours, everything that's his is ours, that doesn't mean an easy, comfortable life by the world's standards. It doesn't imply even a change in your circumstances. It means the life of God in you and with you wherever you find yourself. Be not afraid. Where you go, there I am with you. That's what that means. It's very practical. It means the life of God in you and with you because of Jesus Christ. And his life has a particular shape. The life of Christ. If we're going to say, yes, that's good. I want that. Thank you. If we're going to say that about Jesus, about his life, his life has a very particular shape. It is not one of ease and comfort and pleasant circumstances. Flesh and blood, Jesus says over and over again. Flesh and blood, that reminds us of the sacrificial, self-giving nature of his life. And if you consume his flesh and blood, if you consume Christ's humanity and appropriate his life with God as your own and want to participate in that, you're asking for participation in his very, very explicit, very particular life. So uh, Leslie Newbegin has a quote that I put in the beginning of the bulletin. He says, Jesus, in his concrete humanity, flesh and blood, is the actual presence of the life of God in the midst of the contingent happenings in human history. But the life of God is present not in any form of self-sufficiency, but only in the form of unlimited self-surrender. It's made available to the world only by being given away, the flesh and blood of this man given up to death. It follows that there can be no participation in the life of God except by an equally concrete factual participation in the self-surrender of Jesus, in his broken body, in his shed blood. Maybe that makes you balk. Maybe that sounds a little bit scary to you, but, but it's participation in the life of God. That's what that is. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, Jesus says, and I in him. So if you want Jesus, you can have him. You can have him. It's as easy as taking a bite of what's right there in front of you. Amen. Let's pray together. Father, this life can be, uh, really is, overwhelming to us. We sink under the the weight of all the concerns, all of the expectations of this life, this world. We have a wrong uh, perception of who you are, who you should be. We have expectations and demands of you that need to be changed and overturned, and we pray that, um, that you would help us to truly see Jesus Christ as the good that he is, as the Savior that he is, as the the vicarious human being that he is, the one whose life counts for us in every way and is freely given to us in every way so that we could be set back right in this world and especially in the next world at the last day. We long for the the day of resurrection when we will uh, be raised to glory with Christ and with you. 
We're glad that that is a promise, that that is a sure thing because of Christ's sacrifice, but we pray that uh, even now you would set us back right as you fix our eyes on Christ, that you would let us see him and consume him and appropriate his life for ours in um, ever-increasing ways through this life, that as we go through this world, increasingly we would love the idea that a practical life means practical uh, in Christ, a life practiced and lived in Christ and with Christ and for Christ. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.